How's everybody doing? My name is Sina Palavan and welcome to the Talk Too Much podcast. This is episode number 57 and this was a special episode because this episode we took a little bit of a different route than my normal episodes. We took a deep dive into the history of NFTs and the history of culture. You know, this NFT boom um, is a once in a lifetime opportunity, a, a wonder that we'll probably never come across again. And so I wanted to create an episode for my audience that takes us back in time and that way we can really use a magnifying glass and understand why culture produces such a high ROI. Why does culture generate so much money? Where do these cultural renaissances, where do they start from and how how do they relate to the one that's happening today? My guest for the week was Mr. Josh Rosenthal. Mr. Josh Rosenthal is a partner and co-founder at The Sixth Event, which is a crypto fund. And not only that, but he's actually started multiple businesses and he's a big, big, big crypto researcher. Uh, he also is a historian, in case you didn't know, and he has a PhD. So Mr. Josh is a very well-educated man, one of the more educated men I've come across. And I've wanted, I was very excited to have this conversation with him because I actually watched his episode on Bankless about a couple months ago. And to this day, that was the most unique episode I've ever seen on Bankless. And I said to myself, I need to talk history with this man one day. And when as we as i started as the nft space started progressing more and more i said to myself what uh, the apparent theme that was coming out was culture the culture shock that's happening culture is disrupting every industry and i thought to myself what is culture why is it disrupting every industry how do we answer those questions we go back in time with a true historian that knows everything that needs to be known uh, about anything regarding history and the evolution of human society and Mr. Josh is exactly that. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite episodes to record. As I said, I say this every single week, but it seems like every week my, my guests impress me more and more. This episode, uh, I'm a very uh, I'm a fanboy of history and, and pop culture and, and things like that. So uh, this episode with this conversation with Mr. Josh definitely was a breath of fresh air for me and got me excited. It, it reminded me of my uh, favorite favorite history class in high school, Mr. Christensen. I used to love going to AP history because we just sit and talk. It was like a real college class and it was really, he challenged us to talk, to think and speak in, in, during the class. This conversation reminded me of my favorite history class so much and that's why I'm excited to put it out and that's why I think you guys will like it too. Um, so without further ado, let's get into the episode, right? All right, Mr. Rosenthal, man, I've been waiting to do this. I'm actually very excited to do this because, <laughs> number one, I haven't had a, a great history class since since my old days in high school. And to me, this this is a very important episode. I was a big fan of, of your episode with Bankless because it was a different lens, a different vibe, a different energy when I was listening to the podcast. And it made me tie it made me tie the patterns of our society from back then till today. And it's actually kind of freaky and creepy to think about it when I'm alone how patterns transcend across generations. But um, be before I even talk my uh, head off, I would like to for you to please introduce yourself to my audience and uh, explain your definition of culture. Oh, man, um, that's a really good question. I think, uh, I think culture is a collective identity that uh, individual people project uh, uh, to define their role within a community and the community's role within their own world. So super expansive, but I try not to get, you know, there's whole like dissertations and philosophy books written about this, but just like who you are as an individual, who you are as a community 
And part of that is what's important to you and how do you express that identity all kind of gets wrapped up. And how would you say that, before I even ask that question, what more can you tell my audience about yourself and your background as well? Oh man, uh, okay, so background. So actually, so I have a PhD in late medieval, early uh, Reformation Renaissance European history. Uh, did a Fulbright at the Sorbonne Institute for Advanced Study. They're applied for school for advanced things. A uh, couple master's degree. I was an archivally based historian, which meant I went all over Europe, had to wear a fancy suit, letters of permission and introduction, and actually went into the archives and worked with the manuscripts. So I was one of the few people to do that. Um, working across languages and like coded, uh, coded documents and then basically worked with them interactively firsthand, wrote some software to be able to keep track of things, um, and then really got into the printing press and looked at the nature of the transformation and what happened. Then opted not to go into academics uh, just for a variety of reasons and did a, did a little startup, uh, sold that to an MIT spin out, did another startup, sold it to a public company, and then took the proceeds out of that and, uh, and put together a bit of a, a crypto fund um, back in 17 got into it and so started investing coins drops funds of funds and then doing some of the tech work ourselves validating things like that and then more recently have been doing some of the in real life crypto applications so things like you know running a little helium iot or isp box uh, oh you, your wi-fi is off helium yeah, yeah. So we actually ran it. The building here was uh, an old drug den. Um, you can hear the sirens still going around. Um, and we're in Louisville, Kentucky, down the street from Churchill Downs. And so we we started running a helium box um, and essentially used the proceeds to renovate the building. And we're just finishing that up, uh, playing with turning it into a community center, a metaverse docking station. So we do things like that as hobbies, I guess. I actually was read an article on helium yesterday. That's why it's kind of weird that you mentioned it today and, and, and its future use cases. But now, when you see... And by the way, that will take us into NFTs because this idea of like people, not just cryptos trading coins, but um, but uh, doing things in real life, playing to earn, participating to earn. Like that's one of the reasons we were interested in the, the helium piece as well as a bunch of other things. Like where does crypto actually act as an economic battery for you know people running bodegas or restaurants or what have you? So it's it's much bigger part of the conversation. So we, we can bookmark it and come back to it. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. I really, I, I love how, number one, the helium thing is very interesting to me. And I love also how the NFT space right now to me, um, it's a very big phenomenon because as, as you see many traditional finance experts, a lot of them still aren't in the NFT space. A lot of them don't get it. And I, I thought about it like, why is this market? Like, why do I have the confidence to say this is going to be one of the biggest markets, if not the biggest market in the world in a couple of years? And I, I personally believe it's culture. And I think that I, I wanted to do this episode because I wanted to tie, go back in history and see where it, all this originated from. When you look at the N NFT industry from your lens, Ten today, before we go back then, what, what do you see that sparks your interest right now? Because I, 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 I found it fascinating how you mentioned play to earn, because that might be one of the biggest phrases of our societal lifetime going forward. Yeah, yeah. I think NFTs are like the plutonium. They're the superpower that we didn't have in the last renaissance. Um, and so right now I see it as very, very early. I mean, just super early, where every time it starts out as finance, then it goes into economics, how I, how I earn and make a living. And then it moves into then it moves into culture and communication of value that way. And so NFTs are like really interesting from this third stage. They're probably the superset that actually crypto, they really are crypto in some sense, because if they communicate your identity, 
once like the state's always vying for your identity and crypto and the state are going to vie back and forth for identity. States can use like these hegemonic tools of power. Like the way we fight back against that is through NFTs. And so NFTs like super broadly conceived convey and define identity and your identity, like everything else trickles down from that. It's a function of that, how I pay for stuff, finance, tokens, currency, as well as how I, how as, as well as how I earn. So they're, they're super set from that piece. At the last renaissance, like the state was able to come and swing back and uh, kind of tamp things down again because there weren't on-chain rights. And so you could you could have a ledger and you could have communication, but if you wanted to enforce it in the real world, there is no kind of bi-directional or two-way door. And so NFTs are something new um, that, uh, that we didn't have last time. And they fundamentally like broadly conceived, not just pictures of cats, like if they're actually conveying identity, who you are and what it means to belong to a group or a tribe or define yourself against others or within within a construct, super important. But even more broadly conceived than that, and we're just here in like hints and riddles of it right now, is NFT is like, is digital rights for something in the real world on-chain and something on-chain like in the in a, a, a digital rights of something in the real world or so digital rights of something in the digital world. In that sense, like that's IP, that's real estate, that's that's really everything. They're the super set in some ways. And so, yeah, you want to express it right now. We're at like the very, very beginning where we like retail tends to only understand one thing at a time. So it's like why OpenSea blows up, right? I can't like loot is awesome. Nouns are awesome. All this stuff. It, it appeals to like the super geeky, like Dungeons and Dragons players or whatever, right? Like they're telling your own story, doing abstract stuff. But most retail, like they can do one thing at a time. And so like you say, hey, tell me eBay, but for digital assets. Okay, that's OpenSea. And so like, I guess what I'm saying is like NFTs are like several orders of magnitude bigger than we're even like now fundamentally understanding. And we can kind of talk about it from a historic point of view and go into culture from that. But like, I basically view us as just toying around. Like, is it the art or is it the rights to the art? And if it's the rights to the art or the fundamental thing, then maybe I build my own company nouns, or maybe I define my own world uh, loot, or maybe Maybe I use like a side protocol like zero on top of Wilder. Like, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to go about it. Or if I'm teaching, like I was just lect I did a lecture at a very fancy Ivy League institution and there's a double PhD MD and she does material science. And basically she could do independent research and wrap that IP up as an NFT, right? And be able to work outside yeah. the, the university. So like, I see it as essentially the super set for all of crypto, which sounds incredibly crazy like I'm just like hopping on a fad, but um, broadly conceived, I think the first instance of that is the image and the image defines, you know, culture. So when you say culture, it's not just like street culture, or hip hop culture, or this, I like this or I like that. It literally is all reality in real life and how we relate to one another fundamentally, structurally, like the rights to those that are accessible. So you don't have to go into a medieval archive and dig through manuscripts like I used to. You can actually see that on chain. So that's kind of why I think it's a superset. Man, that's a big first question. That got to the heart of the whole thing. Oh, but I, you you nailed it perfectly because you said a lot of things I actually wanted to touch on. Number one, you said, um, and I'm going to ask you this. You said NFTs are way bigger than we are, it is now. And it has me thinking. I'm a, I'm a VP of operations at a brand new NFT company here in Las Vegas. And when I'm dealing with my clients, I'm realizing now, well, for these NFTs to go off, there's two audiences I'm appealing to. The NFT community, people like yourself who knows everything about this, and who's interested in, you seems like you do a lot of people in the community you know what i mean the people that are integrated and that have a good feel for it but the generic audience as well the people that 
have no idea what this is. How do we appeal to them too? And I think you you nailed it. I think that this is a bigger superset that's going to expand across all industries. But you said something interesting. You said that in the last renaissance, well, number one, you said NFTs convey identity. And then you said in the last renaissance, we never had this technology. Um, but I, you also said something else. You said the state swung back last time. Whereas, and I, I was curious, do you think the state can swing back this time before we go on a history lesson? Because I've heard rumors, you've heard the rumors between the SEC, SEC and, and Coinbase. Do you think that the SEC can, or the state can swing back this time? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think fundamentally they can't, but it's going to be like, as you're circling around a whirlpool, I mean, anything can happen. I mean, so <laughs> that's why I have my historical card revoked because I, I do speculate and try to do scenarios. So like, if we look at what happened last time, history swings into these periods of aggregation where there's hierarchical power and then communities use like decentralized technology, communication and uh, value conveyance. This time they did the Renaissance, this time we have NFTs and they unwind that and they're able to form different communities and entities. And then slowly the pendulum swings back and they rebuilt it and they rebuilt it up as the nation state. And so here again, we find ourselves in this hierarchical worldview, not really aware of it. Um, and now we have, again, ledger-based tech and, uh, and communication tech. This time, crypto is going to render our old world internet as like truly decentralized. So we have that in a meaningful way. And we have NFTs for on-chain rights. So we have all these tools. And so I think we're fundamentally going to unwind it. Like, what's the role of the nation state in that? And like, do they strike back? Like, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. So it's this classic innovator's dilemma, right? Like, if you're running the show, you don't want to disintermediate yourself, obviously. But at the same time, like, once the tech's out of the box, genie's out of the bottle and the tech's out of the box, it's really difficult to put it back in. And historically, it almost never happens. Globally, this happened, the same thing with the last, you know, renaissance and the wars of religion, rise of the nation state. Like, you can put it back in the box in a little bit here, maybe one region here for a little time here. But as it ebbs and flows, it tends to unwind. You will have like, when the state tries to regulate, you'll have them like waging war and they'll wage war, like not necessarily militarily, they'll, they'll wage war just like they did last time at the emergence of the nation state around identity, actually. Like it's actually two cultures. Um, that's why crypto is like, I don't think it's the state, you know, regulating finance or regulating art. I actually think crypto is a new type of state, which sounds kind of crazy, but more than just a hashtag, meaning like, after the last renaissance, you know, there, there was no idea of a state. That's like a new concept. It was just communities that existed in networks and occupied geographies and traded with one another and shared art and culture. And part of that re-aggregation was introducing the concept of a state. Wait, a state? What's that? Oh, you're German, you're French, you're English. Oh, I guess I'm in a tribe in a state. Okay. And so like, if that is like a social cultural construct and imagined community to use like Benedict Anderson's term, like the way that becomes real in the real world is through economic contract and through uh, and through through economics and through contract, and then you have enforcement on it, and that's essentially what the state did. And so crypto is doing the same thing right now. And I think that's fundamentally why the state's going to get super feisty. They're not fighting to maintain control of their currency; they're maintaining fighting to maintain control of like the next iteration of the state. And we can have a whole conversation about how that works geographically and what happens after that, but. Um, yeah, I think they can. It's like much more complex. They can strike back. They're kind of dooms on the wall in some sense. They're facing a new iteration of themselves. <laughs> and so like there'll be ebbs and flows and ups and downs. But now that this concept is out there and we're able to like manifest it in reality through contract and economics, it's really tough to tamp down. And they'll act just like the 
the you know pope and holy roman emperor did last time around at the renaissance once this technology is out of the box you have like a fundamental you have like a very bad choice you can either tamp it down and try to do that that won't work long term or you can participate in it in which case you like legitimize the authority therein um, and there's different flavors of that like that's why if you look at like china central bank currency it's like they can mass force adoption because they turned over their banking system to their version of like apple and microsoft and amazon so that you can you look at it and you're like wow it's beautiful everybody adopts the ui ui it makes sense it's easy blah 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 because it's top down so it's like it's a twin or a nemesis it's like blockchain like you know on it's like blockchain not crypto in some ways right and so uh so when you look at that, you say that's how a nation state could play it. And so in the US, like the regulators will have to ask themselves, like, do you want to try to follow China or do you not? And like, I actually think our own ineptitude is like a feature instead of a bug. It gives us like time for this to like unwind and unfurrow. So I'm actually kind of cheering for like silliness, basically. Like silliness is a function of like adopting it into the mainstream and a function of giving like the time for it to unwind. We'll never be able to replicate China because of the way we've done it. So it's like, it's, it's, politically as well as like mechanically. So I expect the nation state, yeah, to, to fight back in some ways for sure, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a more complicated fight than just like tamping down with regs. And crypto also back to your point on like identity and culture, at the last time, you know, there were these factions, rival factions, right? And then there was this this idea of like a new type of religion. Religion just wasn't like for us a affair of belief. It was political and economic, right? So it was like a it actually was an early form of nation state. And so when that entered, all these political alignments got fragmented, right? And so like, that's actually, if history rhymes or repeats, what we can expect to see happen this time where, you know, we have a two by two political graph, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal, where does it fit? And like crypto introduces the Z axis, right? And so like the single issue voting, like will fragment the whole thing. So that's why you have like Ted Cruz and Yang on the same ticket or whatever, right? Like ideologically, you have anarchists and classic liberals and all these like, the point of the story is it reshuffles everything. And so too at the geopolitical scale too, they will be like enemy of my enemy is my friend and weird things working out. So yeah, I expect them to strike back in some ways. The way they're gonna wager it, the, the conflict is gonna be really around identity. Um, and that's also why NFTs play a really interesting role in that. And that's a long explanation to this, like such a good question. You're asking all these great questions. Should I, I just set the stage for two minutes and just give everybody like the thesis just so they know what we're talking about even? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? You, please. All means, yeah. So uh, this episode, I, I was very interested to do this episode because, <clears throat> as I said, I was inspired by your episode with Bankless. I saw that the crypto renaissance, it reminded me of a history lesson on crypto. And I said to myself, well, why is the NFT boom? going on why why is why are nfts in my opinion there's a lot of people within the crypto community i think nfts will will lead crypto they'll lead the crypto charge and a lot of people don't agree with me but it's not it's not a knock on any other part of crypto it's just the fact that nfts are an easier gateway for everybody it's fun it's something anybody can participate into and so i wanted to do a history lesson and i wanted to talk about the origination of culture and the importance of culture. And throughout these first five, 10 minutes that you were talking, Mr. Josh, you were talking about, you were talking about how NFTs revolve around identity. And you mentioned the previous Renaissance multiple times. And I think that's where I personally was most fascinated where I wanted to take this conversation uh, back, back, back to the Renaissance to the first time this happened. And you know, better than me, and you're going to educate me and my audience was this time similar to last time or, or do you see very similar patterns and do you find 
um, things easier to predict uh, because you know of last time. Yeah, that's, I mean, no, thanks for having me on and chatting. Like I find I have no agenda I'm pushing. I just think the ideas should be out there. And like, I find it helpful to to talk to different people from like wide variety of perspectives and like in conversation, I kind of figure things out. So that's like my only, my only goal. Um, but yeah, the reason we're having this conversation is like historians should be doing this, like real yeah. active historians. And like, it's just such a failure of the historical enterprise that nobody's having a meaningful interaction with crypto. I mean, maybe it's just because they're slower or maybe because of academic, you know, mechanics. Do you, but like, Do you think they resent crypto? Yeah, I think that's part. I mean, some of the better academics are kind of figuring it out and saying, oh, wait, this literally allows us to to capture the value we create from our skill set. But most of them, if they've succeeded, they're trapped inside an institution and the institutions like <laughs> crypto essentially like disintermediates institutions. So they're fundamentally misaligned. And the two biggest institution, three biggest institutions like finance, healthcare, and education. So they're at like the hierarchy of what needs to be disintermediated. So part of it is that, yeah. And just generally academics like, you can't make predictions. You can't be applied. You can't be practical. As a historian, you're not supposed to say this happened, so this may happen. You can't do scenarios. You're taught not to do that, right? That's like you speak in the third person, you use a passive voice, and you never, you never apply it to what might happen in the future. Partially because you know it might not happen. You don't want to look foolish, fine. But partially that's like they just don't they just don't do that that's not their craft and so yeah i think it's a fundamental failing of history like we should be doing it right like um it, it's failed crypto it's failed crypto art it's a tragedy like these historical tools that you develop not just the knowledge but knowing how to work with the tools and apply them to understand how people make decisions and what happens as intended consequences and unintended consequences like that can that could be very very valuable today for crypto uh, help us create better outcomes manage those unintended consequences even unlock these possible worlds and so so yeah history should be doing that i see absolute patterns um definite patterns like my model for history is the swinging back and forth as a pendulum between like aggregation and decentralization aggregation and decentralization and you know maybe it swings back and forth some people just say it goes back and forth like this some people say it goes up you know thesis, antithesis, synthesis, all the way up. But the point of the story is things tend to consolidate and then unwind, basically, is the, the general idea behind that. And so in that sense, like, yes, absolutely. And then where I see them unwinding is like where communities are using not just any technology, but a very specific type of technology, a decentralized or distributed technology. It's, it's resilient. It's anti-fragile. It gives asymmetric advantage to the little guy along the long tail. And when they do that, the power hierarchies tend, they, they have a very difficult time fighting that. So they tend to come unwound. And what happens is as they unwind, communities form, you know, expressing culture as an individual, relationships to one another, what's valuable, especially if they have decentralized tools to convey ideas and value to incentivize. And so you have this rebirth or renaissance, like literally is what rebirth means of culture around that. And what's interesting about that, at each time you have one of those historical moments these like massive transitions, the communities express art, quote unquote, which is really expressing their identity, like as a fundamental building block of culture through the new tech. Like yeah, through the new technologies, the art is always endemic to the tech. It's baked in, right? Um, so they're using art to express identity through the means and mechanism of the new technology. And they're also unlocking different types of content. And like for both those reasons, the new art seems weird to those you know in the former power hierarchies because of the content is expansive beyond what's correct 
and because the new media seems lowbrow and popular and uh, and garish. Um, so yeah, I see absolute parallels to it for sure. That's a long answer, but that's a really good. You're asking all these good questions right off the bat. I, I really, for me, I, I'm very as I, I want to take. I really wanted to take it step by step. So you mentioned that something very interesting. I actually never even thought about it even before NFTs. The fact that you know. I'm starting to see how it all leads to everything, how art expresses identity. I think that statement made me like think, well, right now we all use social media, Twitter, LinkedIn to express identity. And before that, I started to realize just because there wasn't this, you know, computers and stuff, art was still being used to express identity. That really is the origination of art. That's why art became so big. It does. It's not because people just like looking at it. It's beautiful. It expresses who you are, identity. And that does lead to 100 years to 10 years in the future in the virtual world, you know, Ready Player One, for example. Now, and this time, like the thing you said that's different, like this time, like I just want to pot because what you said, that's like really important what you just said. So people were using profile pics before NFTs, right? Like what, what's the nature of the difference? Well, it's technical, fine. It has value, fine. No, it's you actually own your identity for the first time, right? Like that's yours that you project. Like that can't be taken away. That's You're saying like, before before profile pictures? Uh, no, like with a with a with NFTs as a profile okay, picture. Yes. Like if I just put up a picture on Twitter in my bio, yeah. like now I have an NFT and I actually own that, right? So I'm not just expressing identity, and I kind of know it because it fits brand guidelines. I actually own that piece. Like that identity is under my control. Is like. A sovereign individual right like that's just so i just wanted to pause on that because that's like a really important point that you that is that yeah. might be the most important point about nfts as, as we mentioned earlier and i i wanted to take you said that renaissance means a rebirth and so i wanted to take it back to the original renaissance how did the renaissance start and why was why was culture the center of it yeah that's uh <laughs> these are these are big questions so in a, in a nutshell, a renaissance, yeah, the word literally means rebirth. And so like there are always there are always periods of kind of technical change, financial change, political change, but only when it succeeded would it like transform the society and the culture so fundamentally that they said their world was remade. It was reborn, right? The medieval world is a weird world we don't know anything about. When that was reborn in the renaissance, that birthed the modern world. That's the world we reside in until today, right? Like that defined our age all the way until today. And so there are reasons like for that transformation, like for sure. Um, but the, the idea is that the impact was so significant that their world was completely recreated and it defines where we are today. And that's largely because at every fundamental layer of their society, it was recreated in this like rebirth. So call that culture, if you will. And so why, what happened? Well, there are always little renaissances before then. There are always little reformations. There's a whole history of them. You haven't heard of them. When we say the word renaissance, we think of like 14th, 15th century, yeah. like Michelangelo, blah, 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 because the other ones didn't succeed, right? And so the way I ask the question is like, why did this one succeed that in such a way that we heard of it? Or even the Reformation, like Martin Luther, Neil Matthias, like you've yeah, heard yeah. about that, right? Yeah, there, are, but there are reformations before. You didn't hear about those. Why did this Renaissance and Reformation succeed? Why do we know about that 500 years later and we've forgotten all the other ones? Primarily because like there were new technologies that enabled them to make it economically viable, the change they wanted to create, and new technologies that allowed them to share these ideas at scale. Uh, which that had never been the case before. Anytime there's a Renaissance or Reformation, it was usually tamped down. It wasn't distributed. They couldn't, there wasn't a, a network around that. So two, two new technologies pop up on the scene. Like one is this weird kind of accounting that means you don't have to have a centralized 
uh, you know, structure. It's called ledger-based or double-based bookkeeping. So it, it increases economic velocity. And then there's also this decentralized communication protocol. Like previously I had to have a manuscript where it costs, you know, a year's salary and it's written by hand and slow. And now I have a printing press and I can share ideas, bam, instantly all over the place. And so those two things, economic support and ability to communicate the idea, an idea being like also image and identity and et cetera, et cetera, like at scale, the way to finance it and the way to share it basically was one, it was like a technological like precondition that allowed this one to work. Um, and that's also why I think like the one we're in right now, this crypto renaissance is going to be so large, it's going to eclipse the other one. That's what I say when I mean historians in the future, when we say renaissance, just like you don't mean the 12th century or the 8th century or know anything about that. You're just thinking of Michelangelo. Yeah. Historians in the future, they're not even going to know the 14th century. They're just going to think about what's happening right so? now. Yeah, that's like my, that's honestly what I think happens, like for sure. So, so there was these really quickly, I just want to mention that. Yeah, no, sure. Do you think that as time goes on, you know how we kind of view the dark ages as like a lost period in time. Do you see that periods before the introduction of blockchain technology where we can publicly record human society? Do you think those will, all this history will be forgotten one day or no? Yeah, I think it'll be looked back like they'll just be weird esoteric. It's like myself, I kind of know the medieval history, right? Like partially because the source data isn't on chain. I did spend like better part of a decade going like location to location across Europe, getting access to manuscripts to be able to dig out the economic contracts, right? And then to learn how to read them. It was all privileged, 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 privileged. Like the historians in the future will look back. Look, if I just described a world, if I said, let me tell you about a possible world, not everyone could see everybody else's information. We couldn't publish information publicly. If I wanted to look at a contract, you would have to like get permission from some person in a specific consolidated tower and they'd be super educated that would have a, a degree or a title bestowed on them that gave them access to do that within the realm of that political like uh, implementation. And it would require serious funds to be able to do that. And they would be men of letters that would give you access and you had to query it and maybe like rely on like the, the, the political apparatus to transmit that. And it would be through a signature and it would be sealed with a thing. So, you're, you'd restrict all of this information all the way down and no one would have access to that. Like you could rightly ask, is that like, am I describing like the middle ages and like a, a, a archive or a, a repositorium or am I describing like today when I want to get access to a legal contract and I have to go to a lawyer and get a copy of it, right? Like I can't actually have like on-chain access to that. Like we're fundamentally in these like same privileged worlds. So I think we'll look back just like we did on the Middle Ages and say, this was so hierarchical and so privileged. Like the future historians will say, wait, you could only be part of a privileged class to gain access to that document. How would you do it? Oh, you'd write a letter or maybe an electronic letter and someone would have to grant you access to it. Maybe, how would you get granted access? Well, perhaps you've like, perhaps you have uh, gained a diploma that constitutes you your membership as a man of letters who can interpret this contract well, how would you enforce that contract? Would the technology do it? No, 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 no. We would go to a separate institution where another person would decide or judge who had rights. And it'd be like insane. Like even when we describe it today, we use these ar old words, archaic, Byzantine, right? Like you could just as well say medieval. So yeah, I think we're, I think what we've done up until now will be described very similarly to, uh, to how we look at the middle ages and these hierarchies partially because it's super hierarchical, obviously, and partially because we don't have the source data, right? It's only with the advent of print culture that now we can kind of see what's going on all over the place because it was at mass. Only with the advent of the internet will historians look back and see. But just like even print books and 
Flugschrift, these pamphlets, there were a lot more of them than manuscripts, but they weren't everywhere. That's kind of the same state we're in right now. We'll have the internet, but our internet today won't be the internet of the future. Our internet is like this half-baked thing that just sat around for 50 years. Like when the real internet happens, it's happening right now. It'll be on cryptography. Um, it'll be Arweave and Graph and Permaweb, and then we'll have access to that. So we think we have the internet but we don't yet have the energy. By the way, really quickly want to say your episode next week is my first episode sponsored by the graph. So really <laughs> are you serious? How funny yeah, is that? So, so I'm Back actually... Serendipity. No, like they're literally, it's literally, I mean, everybody says we're just like prisoners of the moment, right? You and I remember, you know, the internet, we have it. I can remember when it came on, like everybody da, 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 like, that's not what they're going to think of. They're not going to think of this first 50 year block where it's not like distributed. Like they're going to look back and say, no, no, when the internet really became the real thing that was distributed information. So Amazon couldn't shut it down a nation shapes couldn't shut it down. Like when it really like, you basically need like the information and the ability to browse it, which would be the graph. And you also need some way to share it, which is why we are talking about helium. Like right now, if you want your internet shut down, that can be spectrum or Verizon can shut it off at the source or Amazon can stop processing it, or the protocols don't actually have to work, you know, or it can be a walled garden. Like every layer in that stack is permission, just like a medieval, like technological stack. And so we're now recreating that, the cryptography and value layer, fine. Oh, actually like browsing basically, and like being able to browse information on chain graph, fine. Oh, actually like the idea of permanent, what like to be able to maintain, make sure my NFT persists, fine. And the last layer of that stack is how do I actually broadcast that if someone wants to shut that down? So that would be like the, that's why I'm kind of enamored with the helium idea too on that. So like, no, that's a, a thousand percent. Like, I think we're basically like all medieval and you can say, Oh, Hey, Josh, it sounds crazy. Like you're a madman. You're that we're not medieval. Look how awesome we are. Um, like if you'd ask someone in the middle ages, if you actually read what they wrote, like they think they're awesome too. They think they have freedom and Liberty. And like, they think, they think they're living, they think they're almost sovereign individuals, right? They don't see their world as permissioned. We look back at it and say it's hierarchical. They don't see it that way. They say, look how, look at the Liberty, look how much better off I am than I was way back when. And like, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh century, right? They think they're, they're in a great state with all of these. They actually have, they might even have a Magna Cart. Like they're, they're like, they don't view themselves as permission partially because power controls how you view yourself as well as the real power. Yep, it that's so key. That is so key. I'm going to write that down. And so it changes the window of not only how you view the controller of the power, but also how you view yourself. And so that's uh, the most successful like tools of power, statecraft. If you have to use military on your population, you've already lost. If you have to use the threat of it, that's not great. If it pops into their head, maybe we should resist. It's not as good, but you're better than having to really threaten them. Um, you want to operate in a way where like the new, I, the idea of the new doesn't even pop into their head, where their idea of themselves belonging to a different community doesn't even pop into their head. And so that's what I say when I, that's what I mean when I say, you know, it's uh, identity is the, is, the, is the battlefront for conflict. Like, regulations are important, but they come downstream after like identity around that. And so like, of course, like, like NFTs are incredibly important, right? Like not just because they craft identity, but also because they they serve a few function in communicating that value and creating a community. But also they can be sharpened into such a point that they 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 prick the balloon, they shatter that window, and you're able to see everything else, right? That's why if you look at like you know what Martin Luther's printing, you know you know farmers pooping in you know papal hats or demons giving birth you know to to different curia or whatever it's so shocking it's like it's vile it's heinous 
but it's done for a point. Like academics, right? My dissertation advisor wrote an article on it, scatology and Luther. Like it's a technical academic study of how they use this profanity, right? And they use it as a knife to like prick that or as a rock to break the window. And so like, that's where NFTs like as an economic wrapper substrate for actually creating memes, they're loaded with a semiotic function where they, they mean something beyond themselves. No one likes a unicorn because it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty, but like also it means something, right? You'd think of ether, you'd think of autonomy or agency or like not just hiding stuff under a rock or whatever, or vice versa. You can like pick any, you can pick any one of these pieces. And so it's loaded with this. And so that's like super important for like pricking, you know, that would be like money printer go burr. Our Pope is the US dollar, right? And so like that meme, money printer go burr is like us doing the same thing as what Luther did, right? And so like now with an NFT, I can wrap it and instantiate value around it, which is like, really, really interesting in terms of like making that actually making that viable from a from a, a, a community perspective, be able to tie the finance, the economic activity onto the communication of meaning. And that's one of the reasons everybody talks about FOMO and like Luke Bergen does great work around uh, around, you know, mimetic desire and what have you. It's almost like that craving actually makes these NFTs even more powerful. It makes them more viral. And so they're they're having this communication vector, but they're loaded with a semiotic charge and they they can train radical ideas that also define who you are in relationship to the power structure. So that's why they're super duper important. That's and a I, lot to throw at you. Man, you're asking. No, Let me know if it's too wordy or just cut me off if I get rambled. No, I wanted to say, I really like what you just said recently. I think we're a symbiotic species. Every We're all interconnected. And so I, oh, I think that's a big key that we we live for the approval, whether you want to admit it or not. In some way, we live for the approval and the, the validation of our of others around us. Um, I think that gives our individual self meaning. And some people want to act, want to be individualistic, but that's the truth. And everything you just mentioned makes me think of. I Can I just to... stop you there just for one second? Because what you said, you keep saying these important things and going on. The next yeah, one. go for it. I want so, to. It's so important, like. Yeah, we live for the approval of others for sure. And we desire what others have for sure. And like part of this, like it makes sense if you're in a hierarchical structure, like you want approval of those at the top, right? Because they give you permission. Like I need, that's how like power works, right? Like I need, I need approval from those at the top to be able to get permission to leave, to get a job, to do this finance. I need to be leverage. a investor. Yeah, leverage. And I can do that in one of two ways. I can do it by like accepting their definition of what is was appropriate culture versus non-appropriate culture, what's refined and worthwhile and da-da-da. Or I can just have mass. I can I can earn my way into that just by having lots of like followers and a massive audience, right? So that's why you get like very hoity slash political power meeting like massive influence, right? Those are two paths in the same door. And like that makes sense within a world of like permission. Like crypto unlocking this world of permission, now all of a sudden like those drivers, they're still true today but it explodes the nature of like what's meaningful basically, right? For me, like maybe I don't want 5,000 followers. Maybe I want like a couple that are like really interesting and meaningful to me, right? 100 loyal I, followers is all you need, 100 loyal yeah. followers. Yeah, or maybe I don't want like my my music streamed 10,000 times. Maybe I want it streamed like, you know, a thousand times by people who really care about it. I'm like, oh, but that won't work in an aggregated model because I can't make a living. Well, if you're charging the flat rate with Spotify, but if I have a crypto model that allows me to NFT, now I can make a living. So like it it fundamentally deconstructs not just the nation state, but like how power works, which is like complete craziness. So I just sorry, I just wanted to pause there because like that's so important what you said. It's worth but, unpacking. 
I, I also want to address what you just said. It deconstructs how power works. I agree, but I also see another form of hierarchy being in, being introduced into this new. Uh, oh man, stage. it swings back and forth. No, yeah. you're exactly right. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I want to get to that in a sec, but I want to talk about how how everything you were mentioning about how in the future people are going to look back at the first 50 years of the centralized internet and say that that wasn't a real thing. That was just an introduction to tech kind of. It reminds no, they'll, me. They'll think it's like Digicash, right? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, could you communicate stuff? Oh yeah, sure. You can use, you know, Zelle and you can use, you know, PayPal and you can use oh, wait, Digicash that kind of went bust, but we still have Square, fine. Sorry, mm -hmm. that's what they'll think of us as. Yeah, exactly. Right? And th what's important about what you just said is these are all centralized companies and the number one thing about the what's the barrier between us and the metaverse is interoperability. And now I'm starting to see that ties in everywhere. Like I'm talking even clouds or separate cloud servers, the US, Amazon, all these countries, they're not inoperable. That's why the Internet isn't the Internet now. And now I'm starting to realize what the word the Internet means. It means the metaverse. That's really what it's going to be. It's it's our the, the digital realm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm saying that stack where we everything's centralized. If I want to get a signal, I use Verizon. Well, now I can use Helium. Okay, maybe Helium still relies on some infrastructure, but like later, just where it goes, right? Okay, if I want to process, I kick it over to cloud, which means like three companies controlling everything. Oh, well, guess what? That's why I use some of these other decentralized processing protocols, right? Like we run some like high-end validation hardware stuff here to be able to do that processing, but maybe other people release the same thing. Like Akash is coming out. Like the hard the hardcore guys will knock Akash, but like I let it's like a it's like an iMac, like this beautiful, sexy like machine, which does your AWS processing in place of, right? Or maybe I run it on like an SDK on my phone and my phone's doing it, just like they used to do the the SETI thing on my laptop. So like one of the linchpins of crypto today is like the processing through this cloud. And so like we're unwinding that just like we're unwinding the protocol into the graph, just like we're unwinding the processing into these pieces, just like we're unwinding the the standard for broadcast, like at every level of that. Like, so absolutely. That's a, that's why we've seen what technological communication can do. And it's decentralized in the sense it gives us decentralized access, but the way we run it, as well as the economic incentives are not yet decentralized. And that's what's coming on right now. Does that help? Yeah. And I also, everything you, you mentioned and everything you just said makes me realize that art and technology are actually like partners. And every time arts had a, every time there's been a serious cultural boom, it hasn't just, it was those two factors combining. I no, think a thousand percent. That's why like the, that's why it's so, again, it's just like such a, a dismal failure that the historians aren't in here like having this conversation so like in the the lack of their active participation what you'll have is uh people saying well what happens is people generate a bunch of cash and you have this new class and they want to buy their way into culture like the medici right they got a bunch of money and now they want to buy their way into culture and so it's like this transactional boorishness and that's true in some sense you definitely want to express your status but like even in the renaissance it was very different right it wasn't just expressing their status they were using art to to define what was important to them like right and so like that changed not just saying hey look at me i'm part of this new clique they were saying like even in the renaissance just like bleed an example right like they were basically saying um like these other topics like in the you know in the medieval only so let me take this back a step in the middle ages like there was good and there was bad and good was holy and bad was unholy so if you wanted to be good you had to be in a monastery outside the world your art had to be religious if you were in the world as a farmer like working as a craftsman uh that was not as good and any of the art pertaining to that was low class low brow and like not as good right and so like the medici come along and they rack up funds like nobody's business and then they say hey 
I'm going to sponsor some of this, but I'm also going to, I'm also going to sponsor, I'm also going to like make my money outside that permissioned world in a different world. And so the nature of my art should reflect that too, don't you think? And so it's not just religious topics. It's like topics out in the world aside from that, right? And like Luther came along and upped the game or like kicked it up a notch. He said, hey, it's actually just as holy to be doing your job with your family or to be like milking a cow or to be running a shop as it is to be like inside a monastery. So there's like, there's good valid like things about creation and relationships with one another, like in a community outside this cloistered environment. So now all art is unlocked. Like all these things are just as fantastic. So that's why like, you know, the not just like the pagan images and mythology, everything's on the table and up for grabs for the first time. So you have this unlock, but also there's inherent beauty in like a flower, like, or like an act of like, you know, brewing beer basically, right? Like, um, so that there's a massive unlock of culture from like cloistered to uh, uncloistered, from permission to unpermissioned. And so the content expanded. They weren't just buying identity, they redefined what was important and valuable. And then they also used they expressed that art that was valuable to them through the technology that created value for them, which that like, let me say that again. So like they expressed a new type of art, not just to say, Hey, we're hoity. Like in the old world, they expressed a new type of art to say, no, we're going to redefine what's important. Right. We're going to redefine our culture and expanded content. The act of creation grew more fluid instead of dictation top down. It was much more collaborative back and forth. People could participate you could disseminate, you could print, you could be typography, the roles overlapped and shifted as you went along. And then they used the new technology that made them their money, they used that same technology or that same, that same uh, technological scaffolding to create the art to express their identity. And so like, that's worth a moment of unpacking. So like, like, so for example, like with the printing press, we say printing press and we think of like Gutenberg's Bible where it's text, most of the early material wasn't text, it was image. It was a new type of artistic technology. I'm going to etch in the wood. It's called a woodcut, right? And then I ink it and I stamp it and I can do thousands of them real quick. Or I'm going to copper etch, right? And like, I'm gonna do this beautiful, we'd think of it as like black and white or two line, but it's an artistic craft. It's a image or icon, it's on right. It's like working with a different material and then disseminating that at scale, tens of thousands of them all over the place. But it was a different type of technology. And so like, the art actually used or was part of that technology. For the Medici, it was this unlock, this renaissance going back to the sources, this ad fontes idea of looking, what did we do previously? Oh, these old Romans and these guys in North Africa, they used like accounting that was like ledger based. Hmm, maybe we should do that. Hey, those same guys, they also did this artistic technique that wasn't just flat and symbolic. They had like a really technological approach to making things realistic that like was mind shattering for like the 2D world to the medieval world that was only 2D. They looked into these like techniques and they saw like virtual worlds inside it, right? They saw they saw things that looked like they were looking through a window that had never been done before because that that technology that they used, that artistic technology was baked into it. And the same thing even with literacy, right? Like the press single digit literacy at the time, like 5%. Now I do this and I see these images and I can use that to like redefine my identity or to define it, but also to change the relationship of like how I perceive the nature of these relationships. And then later, as the technology created literacy, because community rallies around the technology, community instancy, its value, value is literacy. Now they start reading and these virtual worlds, there wasn't a lot of fiction, right? There were myths and ideas and da, 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 da. But now what I have do you these- mean, Can you please explain, what do you mean when you say virtual worlds exactly? 
so even like reading a book, right? Okay. Like, so yeah, I'm using that intention. It's like, if I read a book or a bit of fiction, like, and I know it's fiction, you and I do it all the time. We don't think twice about that. That wasn't like a common experience, right? You have the things you're reading, like most of the time, if you're hearing them read, much less now you have access to the experience of reading, right? Oh, so okay. for the first time in early modern air, I can like really read a book at scale, right? And I get immersed in the book, right? I'm no longer sitting here. At some point, I like am moved into like this virtual world, the synthetic idea that I have. And also it might even be fiction. It might not be a lot of the material, history, advice, blah, blah, blah. But like, as I'm reading fiction, I'm transported into the synthetic world. So like- I get it now, yeah. So now, I mean, you can see all the lines of like continuity, right? And so like, so at with the crypto renaissance, what do we have? Oh, um, we have technology like instantiating value, like we're, we're, our art is baked into the nature of the technology itself where we create value, just like last time, right? Like the NFTs, the hashes, like that's the way we communicate finance. That's the way we communicate art. Why? Because it's like a function of identity. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, what about the synthetic stuff? Well, we've kind of had glimpses of metaverse before. We're, we're going to get it at scale, just like we have fiction at scale on that, because like I can go into this synthetic world, right? And these like this technology acts as an unlock to go into a different world and come back. Like that's why I'm saying like on-chain rights. I own something in the metaverse. Even I work for it, maybe at an office job as a lawyer, and I own something in the metaverse can go in there. Or maybe I play to earn and I create something in the metaverse and I translate the thing over, go stablecoin USD, and I buy you know, a piece of property and own the fruits of it here. So they act as these bi-directional doorways and in, into it. So I think that's very similar. And then the other, the third point of that, I guess I would say is that I mentioned that the, the idea of collaborate, oh yeah, and the content unlocks, right? So not just approved, art was fancy and maybe modern art was interpretive and I saw it in a gallery in New York and we decided that da, 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 da. Now I'm looking at like pixelated cats, right? Uh, so like, that's like, that's low brow, right? It's, it's expansive. So just like at the last Renaissance, what was acceptable and like artistic became much, much, much more expansive. And so of course we have new tech with a new expanded role of content. And then finally we have this idea of like shifting more fluid roles in creation, right? Just like someone could do an image, someone else printed the thing, someone else disseminated the thing, someone else wrote the tagline in the Renaissance, right? Like now I can, I can have a generative NFT where like I'm not just collecting, but I'm part of the process and my address on it and that was minted. And I'm a function in that, right? Like I'm part of that story. Um, and then I guess the final part would be just as like the Renaissance unlocked the ability for artists to make livings in ways at scale. There's new economic models available to them that wasn't uh, that were not available previously. Like we see the same thing happening. So like those would be the the four major parallels I see. And then I'd also say that NFTs are still broader into the super set of on-chain rights. So that's like a separate story. That, so. That's what my thing is with NFTs is uh, I hear a lot of people uh, at the beginning of the year had a lot of negativity to say about this industry and they would refer to it as digital art, but they didn't understand that digital art was only the front end. That was it. That was just what you look at. It could be anything. It could The back end is what really gives value to that digital art. So what I'm trying to say is, yeah, yeah. was there any similar technology back in the first Renaissance that... Uh, for example, similar to the NFT industry where your art that you put out uh, gives you an identity and how because I know it was it's obviously not as strong, whereas here it's literally provable. But in a way, for example, um, Da Vinci or, or any any anybody that any famous artist, when they put out the Mona Lisa or one of their famous pieces, you know, that is an associative identity, in my opinion. It's not as direct as it is now where you can prove it. But in a way, you can prove it with. No, people. no, abso you're absolutely. They did that. They did. I mean, honestly, 
not sure how far down you want to go, but like a lot of the stuff we do that we think we're like really novel doing, they did basically, like right? What? Like what, for example? Uh, so like the Medici, if you employed Michelangelo to do a picture, you would say, hey, paint me into the picture in a hidden way. Put my avatar into that picture and put him in the environment, right? And so you have little, you know, Leo, you have your your projection of you, a little painting of you is like one of the characters. They did that to themselves. They 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 did that all the time. Or they'd have... You know, these images are seals, basically, that uh, that would convey this very specific meaning. So instead of a circle with a B around it or instead of a, you know, a double triangle, basically like that, uh, that idea of like, I mean, poop in a hat is like a really good is a really that literally is money printer go burr. Like someone defecating into a papal tiara is like is it conveyed their identity that said, we don't think this source of authority is legitimate. And not only is it illegitimate, it's actually like scatological. It's actually like. It's actually so profane. The only way we can we can define ourselves against it is by saying uh, that we think the only action we have to take is to poop in this hat. Like, it's scatology is a holy act. There's like, there's like academic literature about this stuff. <laughs> I also wanted. To, can I mention a quick point that 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 you keep we keep talking about hierarchies and yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier where I think that even though you, you you made a point to say that I agree that we are kind of unwinding, uh, unwinding the hierarchical, hierarchical structure that is currently uh, in place, I do also think that a new hierarchy is being, uh, in pl- uh, being integrated. For example, yeah. if you have a bored ape and someone who has a selfie of themselves on their Twitter follows you, you're not going to have their respect. They're not going to follow you back. That, a lot of the times I, I realize that's the case. So I'm yeah. starting to realize well, hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Two, five years, five years ago, if you had a really fancy car and you came to school, uh, all the girls, everybody would be, wow, look at that. But now that's great that you have a fancy car. But how does he how does Johnny from Missouri? How does he know that you need to find a way to? And I guess that's where NFTs come in. Do you see a, a, div, a class split in today's society coming from NFTs? Yeah, when I'm talking hierarchy of an age, I mean, like this big cosmic hierarchy oh, right okay. where you have like the holy roman emperor up here and he rules everything right ah, you have like his you have like the next like the princes of the city then you have like the nobles then you have like their minions and then you have the landowners and then you're at the bottom of it and you're at the very 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 bottom of that right do you think do you think ethereum could be served as that hierarchical class of like where the king was and then solana could be the lower one do you think it'll be like that <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's much more going to be bubbling up and fit. So what happened when that thing got unwound, you have these different communities popping up, right? And like these communities pop up all over the place. So these guys, Lutherans over here, Huguenots over here, like Schwarm over here, they're doing it all over in different geographies with different ideologies, with different things that are that are important to them. And within those communities, they want to use identity to associate. And they do want to express status. They want to say, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the leaders of this community. I have status within a community. But it's it's much more self-organizing like around that. So the way to think about it is like, yeah, in a DAO, like decentralization doesn't mean chaos and anarchy, right? It can be. If you want that to be your charter, just chaos, you can do it. But you can also say, hey, we agree on like rights and responsibilities to do this. And you set up a DAO, like a charter or whatever. And like you have someone that's in charge of this guild and a function and whatever, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mean completely flat. The same th- this, but it doesn't mean like, you know, head of a Fortune 500 dictating what you're doing and giving you a performance review from HR and blah, 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 blah. The same thing with like status, like you're, uh, same thing with hierarchy. You're not exercising like 
you know, geopolitical dominance over somebody. But like, yeah, you want to you want to say, like, I have status and hierarchy around this, like either by position or by communicating this around an image. And like maybe that status right now, because we're so early into this, is a function of economics, right? We know like, you know, punks are more expensive than apes and da da da. So like right now we're just in like phase one where it's just how much is something worth, right? Like we think that's nifty. Um, but like as that tends to uh, to progress, like different things become important than just pure economics. Economics become a function of it, but is it originative? Did I have a place in the provenance of it? Did I have a place in the creation of it? Like I might, I might like, you know, a car that I basically built myself, basically, you know, that might still be very high-end sports car and be worth a lot of money, but I might prefer that to, to you know, an off-the-shelf, you know, car that somebody else is driving. Like our, our values, like that would be my co-creation of it becomes a value. Um, so yeah, I think there's definite bits of hierarchy and you'll see that. And like what we're seeing is a complete unwinding. And now that we've reformed these communities, there are still these core drivers of like, what's important? How do I express that? How do I make decisions? Who's in charge? And like that can come from, from a variety of different ways. Like right now we haven't yet seen like governance tokens like play a meaningful role outside of some specific niches. Like that will essentially become one of the ways that we like see this shake out basically. You're, you know? you're saying like if you own a percentage of tokens for a protocol or, or a NFT collection or whatever, you have more voting rights within that protocol or right? Yeah, and even if the rights change, even if there's different types of tokens, like governance tokens themselves, they might not have economic value. They're not like transactional within that. It might be a different class of token that's just uh, not for ownership and equity in the protocol, but just for decision-making oh. capability in it. Oh, so you might okay. see like that, that's something no one's talking about. You've seen instances of that, like where that's become important, um, but that might be something else. Or it might be like the, the substrata might actually be like the more important piece of it too for this identity. So it might be which ecosystem are you playing in? So like one approach is just completely decentralized. That's like loot, right? Or like nouns is a new corporation. Maybe I create it or loot, maybe... I have to tell a story. I have Lou, uh, this necklace and I'm going to imagine that in my head, just like I'm a, a master and I'm telling the story. But like, that's tough for retail. So like some other instantiations of that and like full disclosure, I'm either have bought some stuff or know the people or love them or hate them or so I'm like completely conflicted. So take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. But like another, I, another representation of that would be something like Wilder and Wilder World, right? Like mm. you have an MVP but then underneath it, you also have zero IO as a protocol that unlocks you into these worlds. So maybe one looks like Wyami and it's slick and it's awesome. Maybe the next one looks like, you know, super pixelated. Maybe the next one looks like completely surreal. Like that's that layer. So it might be, it might be metadata based on like just pure play ether. Although even the, they'll say there has to be some abstraction definition on it. If it's like in that world, or maybe it's like a layer two or Vitalik has ideas on it. But in terms of just adoption to retail, the first, the first instances of that, might be through something like Wilder, what have you. And the reason why I mentioned that is like that world will actually express our identity. Like right now we say, I have an NFT and that has value at a dollar denominator like in this world, right? But in the future, like if it actually has utility within an environment, like real estate within a, <laughs> like within a, within a universe or function within a universe, a car I can drive in that universe or shoes I'm wearing or like a piece of real estate, like snow crash kind of stuff. That's why I mentioned like the, as, Right now we're early with like things that are super abstract like loot that's like catnip to people like us who are really into it but like most times real retail takes this first step like say like with wilder or something like once they go into that world just like the first time they read a book and they're like oh wait nfts aren't just cool profile pics i can actually use this to like own land collect rent like have a space here and drive my car oh that's cool that's like a video game right 
oh, zero IL. Wait, I can take that thing and it persists from this world to the next world? That's like craziness, right? So I think that's a, that will change the nature of how we express this hierarchy of identity we're seeing. So like, long story short, like it's just early. That's why we're doing this functional piece of it. That, and also, Wilder World, do you think that um, there will be many other virtual worlds that will be able to um, coincide together? Or do you think that do you think that each one's going to have their own individual thing? Because I do believe, for example, what I'm trying to say is if, yeah. let's say, 20 years from now, there's, you know, in the Ready Player One, there was something called the Oasis. Is Wilder World going to be a part of the Oasis, even though it has a lot of subsections itself? Yeah, it's like, that's a good question. How, like, how all the stuff connects, basically, yeah. sure, right? Like, is it... Is it snow crash or ready player one? Or is it like, like how, what's the, what's the metaphor we're using? Like everybody wants to take the most decentralized approach, which is the right answer for sure. Long-term, but it's like to do that, like that's like super abstract. So you really have to like, that's a very small percentage of people are going to wrap their head around that. Right. And technically it like, it's also another problem you're solving. And like, that may be the right answer for five, 10 years down the road, 10, 20 years down the road. But like, for initial adoption, it's just like OpenSea, right? It's like, oh, wait, it's like all over the place. Like, no, because it's eBay. Everybody stands eBay for digital assets. You can teach me one thing, digital assets. So like, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think we have to solve that metaverse connective problem. I do think it will relate basically, unless it, unless it intentionally doesn't relate. Like China doesn't like, and, and unless it's like a walled garden by design, basically, I think it will be decentralizational went out at the end of the day. But I think within the next one, five, two, five years, and even these connected worlds uh, operating on these underlying protocols are like super important as an adoption gain function. So like, and when the vision you're describing, and I agree with it too, I think when it does happen, we won't even notice it, right? Like we look and we say, oh, that'll be crazy. And it'll be such a different world. But like, as we're building in these adoption, like step curves, like we won't even, when it actually comes, we won't even notice it, right? It's like us right now, we notice the internet, cool. Oh, it's all centralized. That's not good. When you actually start like using graph or when you start like, when you're not using AWS, when you're doing it yourself or using SDK or Akash or whatever, you you and I aren't gonna notice that when that actually happens anyway. So yeah, I, I do agree with that. But I think just like the nation state thing, it's gonna be much more triangulation and like a weirder unfolding, you know? And I wanted to talk about the, uh, there's another, uh, there's a, um, a pattern from back then. I wanted to really see if I can draw some relations to today. You said that the state swung back. What do you mean by that uh, exactly back then? So if you believe, if you believe in this idea of like, you know, aggregation and disaggregation, and by the way, I, I, I'm not saying I believe in it, like it's real and I can touch it. And I'm not saying it's the I'm not saying it's like the only explanatory rubric, right? This is a model. This is like a historical, it's an intellectual model, right? Just like, like this is a model of something, like it's a model. So like when you make an atom and you glue macaroni together in a kid, and you say, this is a proton. It's not that, that's not the atom. That's like a model. So just the swinging back and forth is just a model. And models are important as in that they help us understand things. They have high explanatory power and they might be able to predict things. And it definitely predicts like, or at least explains what happened. This aggregation of medieval world, decentralization through technology, and then swinging back like aggregation, like so after you know collapse of you know Holy Roman Empire, like of uh, you know after this bifurcation and splitting into like alternatives. Previously, they'd tamped down these communities, and now they're foaming up all over the place. Stuff starts to aggregate again, and so it aggregates as political power is like moved more and more and more into centralized parties, and it aggregates 
really specifically in terms of money and yes, in terms of power, but fundamentally in terms of identity, they introduced a new concept called the nation. And that they wouldn't call it the nation state. It'd be best described as like the cult of the nation, not cult in like a, a weird sense, but like the worship of this nation. There's an idea that there is a thing called a nation. Previously, you existed in this region. You had ties to these people. You're part of this network or part of that network. Now you're a citizen of a nation. You didn't know that, but congratulations, you are. And you're not just any nation. You're in this nation. So that's who you are fundamentally, right? And like we all kind of, it's not a real community where we're, we created this community out of shared consensus. And so they enforced this swinging back by enforcing the boundaries of this identity. And they did it through language. You can use this word, you can't use this word. I'm not just talking about profanity. This is like, you know, Academy Francaise, like literally what words are, you don't, even today, you can't use certain words in like printed academic discourse, right? Like you need to keep them distinct basically. Or they did it through, through class and definition of the other, like uh, people groups, right? We're on this side, you're on this side, basically, right? Like defining the other. Or they did it, they actually pulled back religion again, believe it or not. And so they said, we're like out of the decentralization, they had religious liberties and this edict of Nantes, which granted, you know, different parties could express different things. As they rolled that back, they revoked the edict of Nantes. And at first they said, everybody get out of here if you're not, you know, shared belief. And then they said, you have to be shared belief because to be a good citizen. And then once everybody was shared belief with like the king at the top, just like the emperor was perfectly, then they switched it and said, waha, um, it's actually, yes, we need underlying religious hierarchy to support our geopolitical hierarchy, but uh, it's really the geopolitical hierarchy that's at the top. And then with the revolution, they just like literally switch that and they say, it's just pure play geopolitics. Um, so it swings back in terms of like permission and privilege who grants you the right to do certain things and all the ways that you are. If now, if you wanted to be a shopkeeper, you have to have permission to do so. Now, if you want to participate in a financial system, you have to have permission to do so. But I think all that is like trickle down. The core thing is identity. Like you're a citizen of this thing, which means you have like rights, but so too do you have duties and obligations to it. And that defines who you are. And that wasn't something that was even on your radar previously. Um, that was a really good tool of power. Like if you're into this stuff, the most successful tools of power, like um, the, like look up like this, like hegemony is like a good word to look up. Like the idea of like these hidden power hierarchies that aren't overt, that define the idea of not just permission, who gives you what, but like what, what you even think is possible. You're looking at the world back through this little window again, right? You, can you explain this? What, what do you mean by hegemony and what you think is possible? Like, what is that? Can you go a little bit more in detail about that? Yeah. So like, Okay, so you're a medieval farmer, right? You you can't leave your land you without the permission of somebody. You can't you can't be anything besides a farmer. If you want to join a guild, you have to have permission to do that. If you want to you you have to be a good citizen of the religion. You can't be a citizen of another religion. Um, all of these are are permission. But the thing, and we would look back on that and say, wow, that's like so restrictive. How did they exist in that relationship? Those ideas we're talking about, the concept of the other that wouldn't have entered their head, right? It wouldn't have entered their head to say, hey, I don't want to like have my political religious identity with like this individual geography and with this religion and with what have you, that, that like the idea of like, I have the ability to make a choice to do something else, it never would have popped into their head, right? Like that's a, of course they could, but that wouldn't have been like outside the window of their possibility, right? And so like, if you wanna get like philosophical about it, like how did that happen? Well. The power, so the question is, how does that power hierarchy condition the individual to not like 
resist or to not break it or to not smash it, right? And the idea is like to remove the connective tissue to like locate the focus of their identity, not with you and me, but with something else basically. And to have my focus there, so the idea of like locating the primary axis of my identity into like something else horizontal, it doesn't even occur into my head. Like just like it wouldn't have occurred to the farmer to like set up a shop basically, it wouldn't have occurred to them say, oh, hey, maybe I should like go poop in the Pope's hat. That never would have entered their, ha their head, right? Or maybe, you know what, I should go, you know, I should go off and join and go take a tour around you. Like that, that just wouldn't have happened. And like, same thing for us too, right? Like we, we are in, we're in a very specific window where we, the most obvious, we know what like somebody does to, to make it in this world, right? You, uh, you save up your pennies and you go to college and if you have to take out some loans, that's fine. You do a good job and you learn how to like write the paper, even if you're not learning anything. And then you go to get a company, you write a thing kind of a resume. It doesn't show what you know or what you did. It just like follows this form and you impress a hiring manager. And then you like walk through this thing, you get some good reviews, you go up into debt. Like you, no one has to tell you like, Hey, don't like, don't do certain things, but you see it subtly. And the idea of saying, you know what, I'm going to make a living, like using my expertise for like Pokemon never would occur to you. Right. Or I'm actually going to join a get DAO and I sketch, but I'm going to like sketch as part of a guild in a DAO flying. This is what you meant. This is what you meant when you said earlier, power tells you how you view yourself, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. 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 Cause it defines the nature and like the most successful power does it like the most subtly where the, uh, the idea of the other never enters your head. Right. Like stage one, you have to like demonize the other. Oh, that's shadowy super coders and blah, 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 blah. It's like, if you're in that stage, you've already kind of lost. You're in your death roles, right? If you have to, if you have to say these guys are bad, you're a couple steps behind. You want to exist in such a way where it would never even occur to the person that that's a viable option. If you're having to say that's a bad option, and let me explain why, you're already ceding some of that power in terms of them saying, "Hey, maybe I should participate in this group." You have to say, "No, no, keep the locus of your identity here. All eyes over here. Nothing to see over there." Like, and here's why. So I, I think that what I'm starting to think of, what this reminds me of is kind of like in our society today where uh, I, I watched a recent episode on Lex Friedman, a North Korea Korean survivor, and she was just saying how they just don't know. It's not they don't know that we go to the gym and hang out with our friends at Cafe Rio like they don't even comprehend that. And I'm starting exactly. to that's I'm, such a good example. That's exactly what I thank you for making that tangible. And I'm starting to realize like and this is this is kind of so beyond my comprehension that it makes my reality kind of depressing that like is the individual self like it kind of dilutes the individual self as like we're just all part of a bigger puzzle like we're not there's not that much meaning to cena uh, i make that meaning myself but in a, the bigger spectrum like everybody fits in on a puzzle it's kind of weird to think about that like every data that you you only know the, the data that you're exposed to up here and that's the yeah. part yeah it's like it's like i don't think i mean it's like, there's lots of things to be depressed about. This one doesn't make me depressed. I can get depressed about all sorts of other things, but this is like, this is like. Not depressed, sorry for the choice of words. It's just, so grandeur, so big, it's above. Oh yeah, yeah, it's mind boggling. It, like yeah, it, it humbles go. you, right? You're like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. frick. I mean, there's a reason why it's so, it gets philosophical and even religious like real quickly, like when you go down these, these paths, cause you're like, wait a second, like where do I fit in this whole picture, right? And like, not just this picture of my moment in time, but these hierarchies. And now you're talking about these, these possible, no, absolutely. It's like the amazing thing, and I probably have to hop in a little bit. So this is like a good line to like, just kind of close out thoughts on is like, we actually get to witness this, right? We actually get to like, let, like, let me, I know that sounds stupid, but like, 
we're talking about this. We're aware of this, like change right now. Like that's like, that never happens in history. Like most times you're not aware of what's going on. And like, conversely, the bigger the moment, the more subtle it is. It's like, not like a ripple on the surface. It's like a deep current. You don't even notice what's going on. We actually see this like massive transformative event and we get to be aware of it. And we get to, we get to choose if we want to participate and we get to choose how we want to participate and like where we want to participate and not just like choosing A versus B, we can make our own worlds, right? We can say, I want to do this and I, I'm interested in this and I have these skills and I, I not only want to find other people for this, my boss, you know, doesn't like that in the cubicle, but I can actually like make a living doing that now. And like, also I can say, this is important to me, these concepts and find other people and like, that's fine, but we're not just hanging out in like a European cafe, smoking or drinking, uh, drinking coffee. We can actually, we can actually like coordinate around this to like create financial incentives, like accomplish goals. Like that's crazy. It's like, we're in this like Petri dish where we can actually do this. It doesn't mean decentralization has to be this way. It means we have the freedom to bubble up in these ways. Right. And like, we can not only be aware of this, but we can help craft the outcomes and like maybe avoid some unintended consequences. It's like, this will be stuff that you'll be able to look and tell kids or grandkids or historians in the future. will look back and say, what did these guys think about this? Were they aware of it? It was like, why did they adopt it? Why did they not adopt it? What was their like horizons? It's like, it's a stunning thing we're participating in. Like we should be super grateful and appreciative and flip side. We should, there's also like some responsibility that we should like think through that goes along with that too. So anyway, oh. that's a lot to throw you. Um, I, I want to comment on that. Part of me kind of uh, thinks that two things on that, what you just said. Number one, we're living in the best time in human history ever because we're at the start of it. And I do believe as this goes on, or I do believe our individual freedoms might be compromised in the sense of like, I had a, a, a talk with Ray Kurzweil, uh, head of AI at Google. And he believes, uh, it was a little chat, he believes that um, our computers, our brains will be connected to a cloud server within 20 years. Everything will be decentralized, but our thoughts like will be interconnected. So instead of saying, where's the weather and pulling out your phone and looking at a screen, which our grandkids will laugh at us, by the way, um, they're going to exactly you just go like this. And I I wanted to talk about um, I wanted to really uh, mention one more thing. You said that you have to hop. I don't want to take up more of your time. I would have kept going. So thank you for mentioning. No, no, no. It's all right. What if I had a conversation with you in a year from your historical lens? Where do you see the NFT space specifically in one year? I know that's hard to predict, but where do you, what do you think of that? Oh man. So one year, I mean, even, I mean, it it ties to even what you were saying with Kurzweil too. There's a lot of these, like just even beyond a year, there's going to be a fundamental question, like kind of getting to this idea of responsibility too. Like how do you help if crypto gives asymmetric advantage to the little person along the long tail instead of aggregating like AI, like, and it gives us these wild economic opportunities. Like how do we help others? Like whether it's through education or like, I think this off-chain connectivity is like a really big bucket of that, right? And so, you know, whether it's Kurzweil or other people, like there's this gonna be this massive philosophical question of like, why don't I just plug into the sugar drip, right? Not just an implant, but why don't I just synthetic world, IV, I'm just hanging back. Like maybe it's not fancy sci-fi, maybe it's like Wally and I'm just in the chair and I never get out of it, right? Like why do I interact with the real world? like? I, I don't view it as dystopian is that I think NFTs are gonna are gonna increasingly become, maybe not in a year, but increasingly over the next few years, like become like these portals to like these two-way doors back and forth between the metaverse and real life and like change the way we think about both the metaverse and real life. And so these ideas of like digital rights and like obviously the images that convey them and identity, et cetera, et cetera, like that 
represent real world experiences and real world ownership as well as digital lights in the real world, I think allows us to go back and forth, right? Just like we go online and we're in Zoom and then we hop back and we're doing some stuff and we go back in. Like, I don't think we're gonna have to be like quarantined off and like a, in a, you know, on a sugar drip. I think we can actually like participate back and forth. So the real opportunity for NFTs are like, are like translating the real world onto the verse and allowing the verse to go back and forth. So like within all the DeFi guys, like DeFi is great, we love it. Um, but it's like a very small percentage of like global stock and global bond and global real estate and global assets and global IP. And like NFTs allow me to translate all that stuff in the real world onto the digital chain and express it and interact with it. So yes. like that's where I see like the historical opportunity and where NFTs are going. I don't know if that hits what you're after. No, but... that, that, that literally hits. What I, that's actually the answer I wanted. It, it, it was a great answer to sh to kind of wrap everything together. It's the fact that it's not people, it's not that NFTs are just a cooler thing, which yeah, yeah, they're very yeah. cool, but it's the fact that their tech, this technology allows this to be applied to everything. And that's why I think that they're going to lead the crypto charge going There'll forward. There'll be bubbles that pop. Like, obviously, you have people, whales front run. I mean, all that stuff is true. True, true, true. Granted, granted, conceded. But like, the reason people are into it, it's cool because I own my identity and because it gives me a glimpse of being able to translate this back and forth. Like we're kind of resonating with it because like we're starting to figure it out. And like the more we figure it out and see it, like it just unlocks these worlds. So, so you, you said that bubbles pop and I noticed that really quickly to let you go. Like one of one art was big in January, February, and then it kind of uh, it kind of got stagnant. Then collections got big and now it's starting to get stagnant a little bit. And now there's like other utilities coming in, like yeah. 3D collections, like metaverses. Yeah. So is that what you mean? Like bubbles pop and then- it Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll be, th this'll go up and this'll go down, but it's like, just pull the gaze back, right? Like, I mean, if you're doing that in spot trading and that's your gig, like more power to you. But like the bigger opportunity is like, don't get freaked out. Just like when there's a dip in a coin price or there's like a NFT bubble that pops and people don't like this and they move to that, that doesn't invalidate the overall thing. The reason why we think it's cool is like fundamentally we own our identity. We can organize around that. We can like convey it to express like, to do our transactions to actually work and then and then fundamentally we're going to be able to like move back and forth between in real life and the verse like using these as mechanisms and like that's the big thing to keep your don't get don't get freaked out when when something goes down i 100 agree that the macro have conviction in this technology and the macro is what will get you to where you want to get to um thank you so much for doing this interview mr josh i actually had a great time doing it i thought yeah, this, that is a hoot. this is fun this was really fun i actually enjoyed myself like if you noticed like usually in my interviews i'm thinking about the questions with yeah. this time while you were talking i was literally just taking notes like it was a history yeah. class like, <laughs> like back in the day so uh thank you very much this episode will be out next week i'm probably gonna bother you two or three days in a row for the marketing um yeah I genuinely sure. apologize. That's how I just, I go do guerrilla marketing every day. So no, I love it. It's fun. It's thank fine. you so much. This was honestly one of my favorite interviews. I'm not, I'm, I say this every week, but I'm not even lying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Josh. All right. I thanks again. I look forward to it. And yeah, hit me up. This is a lot of fun. Really appreciate yes, sir. it. Be safe. Have a good one. Take care. Yes, sir.